hope you'll take your Bibles and open to Matthew chapter 7. Matthew 7. Continuing our walk through the Sermon on the Mount. When I was in seminary, I took a few classes on public speaking and preaching, and I know you're thinking, prove it. There were, there were things that I was told in those classes, and there are a few things that have stuck and that I think about on a regular basis. One of the things I remember I was told is that you should be careful when you use phrases like, in conclusion, or as we conclude. These are phrases that you only want to use if you're actually at your conclusion. Because if you say that, and I've experienced it, you say that and Bibles start closing, things start getting put away, and all of our minds go to what's next. So I'm careful, and I try to use those kinds of things wisely. With that said, I do want to tell you that we were at the conclusion of the Sermon on the Mount. But you should also know that it is a long conclusion. It has four parts. And it will take us at least four weeks to get through this conclusion. And yet, know this. This isn't the time for us to start closing the book or turning our attention away because I would argue this is the most important part of this sermon that Jesus preached. It isn't the kind of sermon where it's okay to check out at the end. And here's why it's important. Up to this point, as we've gone through the Sermon on the Mount, Jesus has been telling us what it looks like to live as citizens of the kingdom of God. He's been describing life in the kingdom and what it should look like for the people of God to live as such. But now as we come to this final section, this conclusion, the, sh the focus shifts away from how we live in the kingdom of God to how we enter the kingdom of God. How we know that we are, in fact, part of the kingdom. He, and he warns us that some will be excluded, and even that there are some who may have thought they were part of the kingdom of God, only to find out that they were not. Like I said, it's not the kind of conclusion we want to check out on. In fact, it may be the most important part of the entire sermon. How do we enter the kingdom of God? And what are some of the things that could exclude us from entering the kingdom of God? Matters of eternal significance. I should also say this. I want to prepare you because today and over the next couple of weeks, we are going to hear Jesus say things that are hard to believe. There's some significant realities that we confront in these passages. This reality that not all of us are part of the kingdom of God. Not everyone will enter. And, and like I just said, even this reality that there are some who may think that they are and yet are not. I think you know this is true. If you ask the common person, a coworker, a friend, a neighbor, about what it takes to go to heaven, what it takes to have eternal life, there is a general consensus that 
if there is such a thing as heaven, that it's a place where most people will go. And, and we can just smugly say, yeah, but it's true, isn't it? Most people are good people. Good people go to heaven. Therefore, most people go to heaven. Isn't this the general way of thinking? Most of you know that I spent a number of years working in the funeral industry, which means I went to a lot of funerals. I spent my days at funerals and with families who had lost loved ones, and this was the general consensus. He was a good man. She was a good woman. I know I will see them again. Religious, non-religious, churchgoers, non-churchgoers, sweet and kind, mean and rough, they all said it. He was a good man. She was a good woman. I'll see him again. And yet, as we come to the end of the Sermon on the Mount, Jesus says something different. And like I said, these are things that are hard to hear, hard to believe. And yet they're the words of Jesus. And so we must take them to heart. I already told you this is a conclusion with four parts. And in each part that we'll see over the next four weeks, Jesus contrasts two different things. First, we see two different paths. Second, two different kinds of fruit. Third, two different kinds of professions of faith. And then finally, two different kinds of homes or foundations or builders you can choose. This morning, we're just going to look at the first one, two paths. But because they all go together, I did want to at least today, let us hear all of it together. So we're going to read starting in verse 13 and read through the end of the sermon in verse 27. So, hope you'll follow along as I read. Matthew 7, starting in verse 13. Hear the word of God. Enter by the narrow gate. For the gate is wide and the way is easy that leads to destruction. And those who enter by it are many. For the gate is narrow and the way is hard that leads to life. And those who find it are few. Beware of false prophets who come to you in sheep's clothing, but inwardly are ravenous wolves. You will recognize them by their fruits. Are grapes gathered from thorn bushes or figs from thistles? So every healthy tree bears good fruit, but the diseased tree bears bad fruit. A, a healthy tree cannot bear bad fruit, nor can a diseased tree bear good fruit. Every tree that does not bear good fruit is cut down and thrown into the fire. Thus you will recognize them by their fruits. Not everyone who says to me, Lord, Lord, will enter the kingdom of heaven. But the one who does the will of my Father who is in heaven. On that day, many will say to me, Lord, Lord, did we not prophesy in your name and cast out demons in your name and do many mighty works in your name? And then I will declare to them, I never knew you. Depart from me, you workers of lawlessness. Everyone who hears these words of mine and does them will be like a wise man who built his house on the rock. And the rain fell and the floods came and the winds blew and beat on that house, but it did not fall because it had been founded on 
the rock. And everyone who hears these words of mine and does not do them will be like a foolish man who built his house on the sand. And the rain fell and the floods came and the winds blew and beat against that house and it fell. And great was the fall of it. The grass withers and the flower fades, but the word of our God will stand forever. In the late 1600s, a story was written that would go on to become one of the most widely read stories in history. John Bunyan, a, a pastor who was put in prison for preaching the gospel, wrote a story about a man named Christian. Christian was born and lived most of his life in a place called the City of Destruction. But he read and heard of another place, a place called the, the Celestial City. And in the story, Bunyan tells of Christian traveling from the City of Destruction to the Celestial City. He was told the way by a man named Evangelist who also showed him a book that would help him along the journey. But it's a journey that was anything but easy. It begins at a small gate that was hard to find. And as he went, he encounters all kinds of dangers, and he's often tempted to give up. In fact, as, he, as you move through the story, and he's on what's described as this narrow way, over and over he comes in contact with people who would try to discourage him and tell him, there, there, there's, a, there's a better way than, than this. It's not worth it. He goes through a couple of places, these, these great cities, places where others who at one time were on the journey, but they decided to stop, and now they've built this beautiful place where they can live and enjoy life. And he spends some time in the city, and people encourage him, just, just stay. You don't need to go on. Look what we have here. Despite the difficulty and seeming attractive alternatives, Christian perseveres. And he does it for this reason. Because he knows this is the only way to be safe from destruction and to find true eternal joy. So he continues following this narrow and hard way to the celestial city. He arrives after he crosses over that great river of death. Most of you know, or many of you know the story. It's Pilgrim's Progress. If you haven't read it, go see Jason at the library, check it out, read Pilgrim's Progress. And it was written a long time ago, so if, if reading something from the 1600s seems tough, then get a newer updated version called The Little Pilgrim's Progress. It's updated, it's great, it's for kids, but it's fantastic. More homework. Pilgrim's Progress is a story that in large part is based on what Jesus says here in Matthew 7, verses 13 and 14. Verses that are familiar to most of us. But going back to what I said earlier, something we have to, to consider is that these are things that many people struggle to either believe or accept. These verses, Jesus tells us about two paths, and it's worth noting there are only two paths. There's the wide gate that leads to an easy way that's well-traveled, and there's a, a narrow gate that leads to a hard path that's less traveled. Two paths that are very, very different, 
and that lead to two very, very different destinations. We're going to spend our time this morning looking at what Jesus says about these two paths. And here's where I want to challenge you. You may be tempted this morning to think this is a very basic gospel message. I know there's only one way to the kingdom of God. I know it's a narrow gate. I know it's a hard way. This is all pretty basic. And yet I want to gently, or maybe not so gently, ask you to consider that while we may know these things to be true, we often live as if they aren't. It can be easy to drift into a way of thinking that says, most people are good and surely God will save most people. Or think about how tempting it could be to feel like the Christian life is too hard and think, surely he didn't mean for it to be like this. Because there's a lot of sacrifice and self-denial here. A lot of struggle and suffering. Surely the Christian life should be easier. And yet we come here and we hear what Jesus says about these two paths and we see this path that's wide and easy and well-traveled, but it's not the path that leads to life. Instead, the path of the Christian life is narrow and hard and less traveled. What does that mean? Well, we're going to divide the rest of our time together into considering these two paths. But notice what Jesus starts with. If you have your Bible, you can look there at verse 13. Before he tells us about the two paths, he tells us which one to choose. Do you notice this, this, this command or this call at the beginning of verse 13? He says, enter by the narrow gate. What we see here is there is a choice to be made. When it comes to being part of the kingdom of God, when it comes to being a Christian, there is a choice that every single person has to make. And Jesus is acknowledging that here. He says, you have to make a choice. Everyone has to make a choice. There are two gates, two paths. We must choose. In fact, there's no one who's not choosing. Whether we know it or not, a choice is being made by every person. Jesus tells us which one to choose. He says here, Enter by the narrow gate. As we've been working our way now for a few months through the Sermon on the Mount, we've been listening as Christ tells us what it looks like to live as the people of God. But here's something I, I've tried to be clear about. I hope I've been clear about this. That living up to the standards of the Sermon on the Mount is not the way we enter the kingdom. Now, hope I've also been clear <laughs> that the people of God should be striving to live this way. And in fact, if we are not striving and seeing growth in these areas, then perhaps we have reason to wonder if in fact the Spirit of God lives in us. But the sermon up to this point hasn't been about how we get into the kingdom of God. And yet now Jesus comes to this point and he tells us there are two paths, a choice must be made, and he gives us the right choice. He tells us, enter by the narrow gate. Choose the narrow one. And then he contrasts these two ways, these two paths, these two roads. Enter by the narrow gate, and he says this, for wide and easy is the way that leads to destruction, and those who enter by it are many. 
one of the things that always stood out to me about that story, the Pilgrim's Progress, is that when Christian sets out on his journey from the city of destruction to the celestial city, he's not a part of a caravan. It's, it's more or less a story about a, a solo journey. It's a story of a man doing something that most people weren't willing to do. Most people were content to live in the city of destruction. It's where they had always lived. It's where their parents lived. It's where their grandparents lived. It's where everyone they knew lived. And while there had been some people over the years who had left, that wasn't the norm. The most common thing, the most accepted thing, was just to do and be where everyone else was. And that's what Jesus is getting at when he tells us about this first path. He describes the entrance as a wide gate. It's a gate that everyone sees that most people go through. In fact, it's the gate that many people choose without recognizing there's another gate to go through. It doesn't require much. It's open to everyone. In fact, if you look on the crowds, it seems like the right one. Again, as we think about where we've been in the Sermon on the Mount, Jesus has been contrasting the ways of the religious leaders with the ways of the kingdom of God. And what we've seen over and over is Jesus is calling us to live counterculturally. When it comes to thinking about how we gain eternal life, the natural thing is to trust in our own righteousness. The natural thing is to believe that we can be good enough to pray enough, to fast enough, to give enough, to be at church enough. And this is the way that most people think about being right with God. And yet, this isn't the way that leads to life. As Jesus describes the first path, he says it's a, a wide gate and there's a lot of people on it. And this wide gate, I almost did this, I do this. This wide gate leads to an easy road. Again, thinking about Pilgrim's progress and Christian and his journey. Something we see if, if you read through that story is over and over, people trying to help Christians see that he's on an unnecessarily hard path. From their perspective, he was making life harder than it needed to be. There was a more comfortable, more convenient way, a way that required far less. And this is something we can be tempted to think. The Christian life is too restrictive. It takes too much commitment, too much sacrifice. It's too much to keep trying to live and honor God. Surely it must be, there must be a, a better way, an easier way to get through life. It's temptation that is expressed by a guy named Asaph. After you, maybe before you read Pilgrim's Progress, read Psalm 73. It's a, a, a song, a psalm written by a man named Asaph and it's one of my favorite psalms, and it's one of those, I wonder if you have passages of Scripture like this. For me, I, I grew up around the church. I grew up around the Bible, and yet there are some passages that I came to a little later in life, and I was like, where has this been, right? Well, it was between Psalm 72 and Psalm 74. It's Psalm 73, and it had always been there, but I remember I was probably 18 or 19, and I read it and thought, wow. This guy, Asaph, he says this. I'll, I'll read a portion of it for you. He says, Truly God is good to Israel, to those who are pure in heart. He makes this great statement of faith. And then he says, but as for me, my feet had almost stumbled and my steps had nearly slipped. 
For I was envious of the arrogant when I saw the prosperity of the wicked. Because they, those, the ungodly, they don't have any pain until death. Their bodies are fat and sleek. They're not in trouble as others are. They're not stricken like the rest of mankind. Pride is their necklace and violence covers them as a garment. Their eyes swell out through fatness, which is a good thing in this context. Their heart overflows with follies. It says, behold, these are the wicked, always at ease. They increase in riches. And yet, he, then he turns and says, in vain I have kept my heart clean and washed my hands in innocence. All day long I have been stricken and rebuked every morning. Remember the first time I read that, just being blown away by Asaph's honesty. So I'm watching them. They seem prosperous. They seem healthy. They seem carefree. They're proud. They're arrogant and violent, but their lives seem good. Maybe I'm following God and trying to live his way in vain. This is what Jesus acknowledges in verse 13, that this first path may seem easier because on this path, there's no reason for guilt. There's no need for repentance. And it's the path that most people take. Jesus says at the end of verse 13, those who enter by it are many. It's well-traveled. Again, no repentance needed. No sorrow over sin required. And it's the path we're all naturally on. And can we just be honest that sometimes it's just easier to go with the crowd? But the problem is where this path leads. This way leads to, Jesus says, destruction. The gate is wide and the way is easy that leads to destruction. And those who enter by it are many. This is what's so dangerous. And it's what we often try to ignore. Most people are on this path, and while they may think they're good, they don't realize they're on a path that's leading to destruction. And I want to clarify, because I think we can hear that word destruction, just think that Jesus may be saying that they get to end their life and they're destroyed, they're gone, they're annihilated. But that's not the broader teaching of Scripture. Now, the Bible tells us that those who die apart from Christ enter eternal life an everlasting life under the judgment of God. I told you earlier, this is a passage and that brings up things that are hard to consider and maybe hard to believe, but if we believe the Bible, we must believe these things. Jesus describes the fate of the wicked in Matthew 25. He says, and when I say the fate of the wicked, I just mean anyone who hasn't come to Christ and been saved by him. It's where we all once were. He says, when the Son of Man comes in his glory and all the angels with him, he will sit on his glorious throne, and before him will be gathered all the nations, and he will separate people from one another, as a shepherd separates sheep from goats. He'll say to those on his left, depart from me, you cursed, into eternal fire prepared for the devil and his angels. And these will go away into eternal punishment, but the righteous into eternal life. In Revelation 14, we're told the smoke of their torment goes up forever and ever, and they have no rest day or night. This is what the Bible teaches, and that those who die in their sins apart from Christ will be under eternal judgment. 
Now, going back to Psalm 73, this guy named Asaph, I told you that he, he was frustrated because he had been trying to follow God, trying to live the way of God, and yet he saw those who didn't, and their life seemed better than his, and he was frustrated by that. But notice what happens as we continue to read through Psalm 73. I'll pick up again. He says, In vain I have kept my heart clean and washed my hands in innocence. For all day long I have been stricken and rebuked every morning. If I had said, I will speak thus, I would have betrayed the generation of your children. But then he says this. But when I thought how to understand this, it seemed to me a wearisome task until I went into the sanctuary of God and then I discerned their end. Truly, you have set them in slippery places. You make them fall to ruin. How they are destroyed in a moment, swept away by utter terror. Like a dream when one awakes, O oh Lord, when you rouse yourself, you despise them as phantoms. You see how his thinking shifted? He says, for a while I was seeing their lives and I saw that they looked better. Their way looked better than mine. But then I, I went into the sanctuary. He comes into the place of God and he remembers that path leads to destruction. He says, I discerned their end. This isn't something we like to talk about, but it's exactly what Jesus is talking about in Matthew 7, 13. Two paths and one path leads to destruction. And it can be easy to think that that's a path that the minority of people are on. It's the end for the exceptionally bad or the worst of the worst. For the ones who do enough wrong to move themselves out of the category of God's people and into the category of the exceptionally bad. That's not true, is it? Jesus says, those who enter by it are many. And in fact, it's the path that every one of us starts on. This is the common misconception that we all start on God's way until at some point we move away. But the scriptures tell us that we all start on the path leading to destruction. And it's only through Christ that we can be moved to the path that leads to life. Ephesians 2 describes where we begin. Paul says, you were dead in trespasses and sins, in which you once walked, following the course of this world, following the prince of the power of the air, the spirit that is at work in the sons of disobedience, among whom we all once lived in the passions of our flesh. It's where we begin. Carrying out the desires of the body and mind, we were by nature children of wrath like the rest of mankind. It's not that we were all born good and the goal is to stay on the good side. The Bible says we're all born in sin, deserving the wrath of God. We're born walking toward that wide gate and easy path that leads to destruction. But thankfully, friends, we don't have to stay on that path. It's a hard passage, but it's also a passage of hope. Because remember how Jesus starts? Before he tells us about all this, he says, go the narrow way, enter through the narrow gate. This is what evangelist tells Christian. He points them to that narrow gate. This is what we are called to tell the world. There are two gates. Enter by the narrow one. 
The gate is narrow and the way is hard that leads to life. But those who find it are few. Obviously, Jesus is contrasting these two paths. One has a wide gate and one narrow. One has an easy path and one hard. One is well-traveled and one is less-traveled. And if we come at, at this without knowing anything else, it seems like maybe the wide and easy path would be the most desirable one until we see that it's the second one that leads to life. So let's get to the point. What is the narrow gate and how do we go through it? What we know from Scripture is that the narrow gate is Christ himself. Here's the truth. No one is righteous, no, not one. On our own, none of us will enter the kingdom of God. We are all sinners who stand condemned, but this is why Jesus came. He came to do for us what we could not do for ourselves. He lived a perfect life. He died a sacrificial death. He rose from the dead in victory so that anyone who repents of their sins and trusts in his finished work can be saved, forgiven, reconciled to God. And this is the message we proclaim, that all who believe in him will be saved. But recognizing the narrow path, we recognize there's only one way, right? This is the passage that David read for us earlier from John 14. This conversation that Jesus was having with his disciple. And Jesus said, I'm going away and you can come to where I am. Thomas said, I don't know where you're going. I don't know how to get there. Jesus said to him, I am the way, the truth, and the life. No one comes to the Father except through me. It's the only way. It's narrow. It's exclusive. We only get to God through Christ. I like the way Peter says it in Acts 4. This is not long after Christ returns to heaven. The church is being born. Peter through the power of God, heals a man. And those who are watching asks him, ask him, how, how was this man healed? And Peter says this, Let it be known to all of you and to all people of Israel that by the name of Jesus Christ of Nazareth, whom you crucified, whom God raised from the dead, by him, this man standing before you well. This Jesus is the stone that was rejected by you, the builders, which has become a cornerstone. And there is salvation in no one else. For there is no other name under heaven given among men by which we must be saved. These are just two examples of a message that we get from Genesis to Revelation. That there is only one way to God. It's through Christ the Son. The gate is narrow and the way is hard that leads to life. Why does he describe it as a hard way? And maybe you think, I have heard you say from that pulpit in this room that the Christian life is a life of joy and peace and contentment. And that's true. It's also a way of repentance. And can we be honest in admitting that repentance is hard? It's hard to turn from our sins, it's hard to deny the flesh but the way of following Christ is a way of repentance. We repent in order to be saved, and the Christian life is an ongoing life of repentance. It's why every week, early in the service, I encourage you to consider your sin and to, to repent. 
It's the way we show that God is continuing to do his work in us. The gate is narrow and hard. It's hard because it's a, a, a road of repentance. It's hard because it's a way of self-denial and sacrifice. There's a story in Luke chapter 18 about this, this ruler, a, a rich man, a man of authority and power. He comes to Jesus and he asks a great question. He asks Jesus, what must I do to inherit eternal life? Jesus starts by telling him, keep the whole law. Now, none of us can do that, right? And yet this man tells Jesus, because of his tradition and the way they consider the law, he says, I've done that, I've kept the whole law. It's not true. But Jesus doesn't tell him that. He says, okay, if you've kept the whole law, here's, ne- here's what's next. He says, one thing you still lack. Sell all that you have and distribute it to the poor. And you will have treasure in heaven. Follow me. So he tells this man who's rich, he says, if you want eternal life, get rid of everything. Here's what happens. The man, Luke, tells us, became very sad. Because he was really rich. And Jesus, seeing that he become sad, said, how difficult is it for those who have wealth to enter the kingdom of God? It's easier for a camel to go through the eye of a needle than for a rich person to enter the kingdom of God. And those who heard it said, then who can be saved? Jesus said, it's impossible with man. But it's possible with God. It's a passage that's troubled a lot of people because the question is, is Jesus saying that the way to be saved is to sell everything? Is that what he's saying? The answer is maybe. What Jesus knew is that this man loved and trusted his money more than anything else. And the only way that he would ever trust Christ fully would be to give it all away. And this is the call for every one of us. To not trust anything else but Christ alone. The way of following Christ is hard. It's a way of self-denial. It's a way of sacrifice. Jesus says, if anyone would come after me, let him deny himself, take up his cross, and follow me. For whoever would save his life will lose it, but whoever loses his life for my sake will find it. This is what Jesus means when he says that the way is hard. It's a way of repentance and of self-denial and of sacrifice, and it's a way of suffering. And this is a whole sermon that can be fleshed out. Jesus says, a servant is not greater than his master. If they persecuted me, they will also persecute you. This is the way Jesus describes the Christian life. It's a a way of repentance. It's a way of self-denial. It's a way of sacrifice. It's a way of suffering and joy and contentment and peace and hope. But that's another sermon. With that said, it shouldn't surprise us that Jesus calls it the hard way that's traveled by few. He says, the gate is narrow and the way is hard that leads to life, and those who find it are few. Which I don't think necessarily means it's being hidden or concealed. It's comparative. We've acknowledged that the way we begin our lives is on the wide and easy path, and most people remain on that path. To leave that path is hard. That leaving requires repentance and self-denial and sacrifice and suffering. So it's the path less traveled. 
It is interesting, though, and some more homework for you. Jesus says several times in the Gospels that few will come. He says it very plainly in Matthew 22. Many are called, but few are chosen. Which brings up a question in Luke 13. Someone asked Christ, they said, will those who are saved be few? And here's what Jesus says. He could have said yes or no. Here's what he says. Strive to enter through the narrow door. For many, I tell you, will seek to enter and will not be able. When someone asks, will many or few be saved? He says, go through the narrow way. But when he says that, he knows it's a way that requires repentance and self-denial and suffering and sacrifice. It's dangerous maybe to be jumping in and out of so many passages. But the point is that it's a narrow gate and a hard way and few find it. But here's the sweet, sweet news. That all who do enter this way gain eternal life. God so loved the world that he gave his only son that whoever believes in him should not perish but have eternal life. The narrow gate, the hard way leads to life. And yet the temptation remains to choose sin and self over life. So just a couple of questions to consider. Have you entered the narrow gate, which is Christ? Are you walking along that hard and narrow path? Something we're going to consider over the next couple of weeks is there are many who claim to know God and yet they've never actually entered. So this is the teaching from Jesus. This is the conclusion to this great sermon. A call to examine our hearts. The way is hard, but the end is life. Can I go back to Asaph just one more time? At the beginning, he struggled because he saw the prosperity of the wicked. Then we're told that he remembered the path they're on leads to judgment. And then he remembered this. He says in Psalm 73, starting in verse 23, Nevertheless, I am continually with you. You hold my right hand. You guide me with your counsel. And afterwards receive me to glory. Church, this is where I want to remind you of the sweetness of following Christ. Asaph says, I see their lives. They, they don't worry about their sin. They do whatever they want, and it seems fantastic. But when I'm thinking rightly, I recognize the path they're on leads to death. But here is my life, continually in the presence of God. He holds my right hand. He guides me with his counsel. He'll receive me to glory. Whom have I in heaven but you? And there is nothing on earth I desire beside you. That's a switch, isn't it? From the beginning, where he's frustrated and angry. And now he says, you're all I need. My flesh and my heart may fail, but God is the strength of my heart and my portion forever. And I know, friends, some of you are in seasons of difficulty. And you are striving to honor Christ, but it is hard and maybe you look around and think, there must be easier ways. If I didn't have to worry about obedience, if I didn't have to worry about pleasing God, 
if I could just live my life the way I wanted to live it, things would be better. And friend, I want to warn you, that's the temptation of the wide and easy gate. But consider what we have when we follow Christ. The one who is always with us in this life. And who, at the end of life, will receive us into eternal life and eternal joy. We should be able to say with Asaph, whom have I in heaven but you? And there is nothing on earth I desire besides you. My flesh and my heart may fail. But God is the strength of my heart and my portion forever. This is the hope of all who enter through the narrow gate. Dare I say, in conclusion, there are many who think they have eternal life. And yet they're walking abroad an easy way without any recognition of where they're headed. And friends, this is the call of God for us who have believed to warn them, to be the evangelist, like evangelist in the story, the one who pointed the Christian to the narrow gate. May we be that kind of friend. On Friday, I was here at the building and I was putting up some tables and stacking some chairs and I had been thinking through this passage but I threw in my headphones and I was listening to a comedy podcast I enjoy. This comedian was telling a story about how he'd grown up in the South and then he moved to Chicago. And he said he was surprised when he moved to Chicago because when he got there, he met someone for the very first time who wasn't a Christian. He said, where I grew up, everyone was a Christian. Everyone I had ever known was a Christian. I was surprised to meet someone who wasn't a Christian. This is a guy who I just know through his comedy, but he's made references to growing up in church, to being from a Christian home. Yet do you recognize the sharp contrast between that way of thinking? This idea that because we live in America and because we go to church and because we're a part of this culture, that everyone's a Christian. And maybe you wouldn't say that, but I think you understand the mentality. There are people all around us who think this way. Maybe they simply believe that most people are good and good people go to heaven. But friends, the words of Christ are the gate is wide and easy that leads to destruction and those who enter by it are many. The gate is narrow and the way is hard that leads to life and those who find it are few. Through Christ, we can count ourselves among those who have entered the narrow gate. But this is a message that must be shared. Hear the call of Christ. Enter by the narrow gate and proclaim to all who will hear. Next week, we'll continue the conclusion. Let's pray.